The first reading this morning is taken from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, and is found on page 1096. The believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. The second reading is taken from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, can be found on page 1001. The Great Commandment, sorry, the Great Commission. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. So, Lord, show us your ways and teach us your paths. For you are God, our Saviour, and our hope is in you all day long. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the week three of a three-week series exploring three key practices that as a church we're, we're seeking to deepen in our lives together. Those three key practices, if you like, that we want to become part of our church culture. If you don't know what culture means, it's perhaps best summed up by Derek Warlock, who was the former Roman Catholic Archbishop of Liverpool, when he said this, culture is the way we do things around here. 
And so these three key practices that we've been looking at over three Sundays are the things that we're looking to deepen in our life together. And each of them is based upon a command that Jesus gave to every church. It doesn't matter what church it is, wherever they are. Those commands were these, to love God with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And we looked at that, and we said two weeks ago, and we said that that was perhaps expressed through our prayer life to God. Because you can tell an awful lot of how much someone loves God by the way they pray to him. Then last week we looked at what it means to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to care for one another. And then this week we're looking at what does it mean to love people who don't know Jesus? And what does it mean to share our faith with them? And the three key words we're looking at, and it's kind of helpful for us so we don't forget them because they all rhyme, a prayer, care, and share. And so this morning, we're thinking about what does it mean to share our faith. Just like we've looked at what does it mean to care for one another, what does it mean as well to love God. And I've tried to get across, if you were here two weeks ago, this particular idea. That if the church were a fruit, what type of fruit would it be? And I've kind of said that, sort of like, for me, the best example is a peach. Why? Because a peach is, is soft on the outside, but it's got a solid core. But also, when you eat a peach, certainly a ripe it gets messy, doesn't it? You kind of eat a bit like a baby again, don't you? You've, you, I'm sure you've done it. Don't say you haven't, because I've seen some of you do it. So it's fine, basically. And you see, there's that idea of a peach, soft on the outside, with a solid core. And with this whole idea of it gets messy, reminds us so much that when we love, we love like Jesus loved. And when we think about how Jesus loved, Jesus' love, first of all, was it was kind of soft on the outside. It was full of grace, wasn't it? You can't define grace in the Bible. It's very difficult to. It's something that is totally and utterly overwhelming, totally something that is, that is outrageous. And Jesus was just one of those people who, who people were just attracted to. He kind of said, come as you are. But Jesus also spoke about a second word when we think of Jesus' love. It was the word truth. You know, the Bible describes Jesus as someone who came who was full of grace and full of truth. It reminds us of the solid core that Jesus would say on 78 times in the Gospels. He's recorded to saying, I tell you the truth. And so with the encounters that Jesus had with, with people, he said, come as you are, but he also said, do not stay as you have been. And then the third word when I think about Jesus' love is the word messy. And I think of that word because when we think about who Jesus was as God and the story of Christianity, it's all about how Jesus came to be with us. How God came and pitched his tent with us. You see, people only knew that Jesus was for them because he spent time with them, getting his hands dirty and getting messy. And of course, it did get messy 
when he, he died on the cross. And so when we think as a church of, when we think of those ideas of what it means to embed those three, if you like, cultures that we want in our church of prayer and care and share, we've got to overall have that theme flowing through them all of love. Love that's full of grace, love that's full of truth, love that's quite happy to, to get their hands dirty. And so this week, we move on and thinking about how we can be more peachy, if you like, with how we share our faith. Now, you should have, or you should have been given this morning, a bookmark. Is that right? Yes? And you should also have an A5 sheet of paper. We're going to use the bookmark this morning as the structure for what I'm going to say. And we're just going to run through it from there for how we share our faith with people who don't know Jesus. You know, J. John, J. John, who probably more than any UK evangelist, maybe over the past 30 years, God has blessed his ministry perhaps more than anybody else in terms of evangelism in the UK, said this. There are two reasons why people aren't Christians, if they aren't Christians. One is because they haven't met a Christian yet. And the second reason is because they have met one. Think about that for a minute, and it, it tells you this morning so much. So we're going to look at this framework, and we're going to start with that, that passage right at the start of that book, right at the top of that bookmark from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, because these two verses give us the only reason why and the only motivation we ever need as to, to why we share our faith. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again you know just look at the language Christ's love compels because we are convinced of the difference Jesus' death and resurrection makes to anyone's life just think about when you use the word compel, if ever. Think about whenever you use the word convince, and you're absolutely certain about something. And that's what, that's what Paul is trying to get across there to the Corinthian church, because the only hope we have, the only hope that a Christian can offer anyone, is because Jesus died and, and rose again. We have nothing else offer and we believe as Justin Welby recently said this we share our faith because the best decision anyone can ever make at any point in life in any circumstances whoever they are, wherever they are whatever they are is to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is no better decision for a human being in this life to make any human being you know, love is the only reason why we share our faith. Love is the only motivation we should ever have for sharing our faith. Because when it isn't love, we treat people as a project rather than a person. And one of the biggest criticisms out there of non-Christians towards people who are Christians is that their Christians are only interested in converting me. And I'm not interested as if they're a project rather than a person. 
Love is the only reason why we share our faith. It's the only motivation we ever need and we ever have. And so we've got these five practices, if you like, these five practices based upon the word share that, that really I think if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be able to do this. You should be able to do these, these, these five practices as, as part of everyday life. So we're just going to run through them this morning. The S. The S stands for, for story. If you like, your story. Your story of why you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the biggest myths out there that we often believe as Christians about evangelism is nobody is interested in my story because, well, it's boring. And that's just a load of rubbish, isn't it? Because people love stories because narrative is our culture's currency. We just deal in stories and we just, we just love stories. And often we, we kind of read a, a dramatic conversion in the book of Acts in the Bible and we, we think, mine isn't anything like that. Mine's just dull and boring, and it isn't. Listen, read the 28 chapters of the book of Acts and look at how many dramatic conversions you have and look at how many people are Christians at the end of it and you'll see, crumbs, there must have been lots of dull and boring encounters. You know, there can never be a dull and boring encounter with Jesus Christ because it's your story. It's your story of the difference that he's made to your life. And your story will typically, it will have three parts to it. It will, it will say something about... What your life was like before Jesus. It will say, well, this is when I met Jesus. That might be a process. It might be an event. And then it will say, so this is how my life has changed as a result. So, so here we go. So if this was me, I'd maybe talk about how I grew up in the church in my life before Jesus. But I'd maybe then say, well, you can spend all your time in church and never know Jesus. Take it from me, you get some weird looks from people when you say that. And then maybe I'd talk about, about the moment when my life changed forever, the 17th of August, 1985, at Queen Margaret School in a little village called Eskrick near York. And I might also mention there how I heard the voice of God the year before, but I kind of chickened out. To kind of remind people that evangelism is both a process and an event. And then, I'd, and then I'd maybe talk about how my life has changed since. And just to tell people, you know, sometimes that people think that when you meet Jesus, everything is going to be wonderful. And that isn't the case at all. Because God never promises anyone an easy life. And I've never met a Christian yet when they've met Jesus whose life has gone like that. Because mine goes kind of round in a circle and then in a bit of a messy line and, and, and so on from there. I might talk about how I became a priest and why I became a priest and how that's changed not just my life but my whole family's life as well. And why you then do crazy things like move to new places that just on the call of God. And that would be my story. It's just a, a simple story that we should all be able to say in about a minute so as to why we're a follower of Jesus you know if you if you don't know how to do that and if you think you know I need a bit of help with that you know on that bookstall of the books that I've kind of recommended you'll see 
on there. The top two ones there, natural evangelism on that A5 sheet and stepping into evangelism, are very good. They've got a chapter in that. They'll just break it down. You know, take some time over the summer with a trusted friend or a family member. And actually, if you've never done it before, work out your story. Or if you need to refresh it, spend some time actually doing that. Be intentional about your story. Because your story is important and your story is valuable because it's about you. Here's the, here's the next letter. The next letter, I talked a bit about this when we talked about caring for one another last week. But the letter H stands for host. So if you weren't here last week, this is, this is what I said. If you've forgotten what I said last week, let me just remind you. Basically, whenever if we're a member of this church, you know... Basically, if you've been coming here for a while, if you're on the church electoral roll, whenever we walk through that door, we should see ourselves as a host, not a guest. doesn't matter whatever we're doing in the church, we should say, this is my home. And when we think about when, when people who don't normally come here turn up, we should think, right, all the time, think host. Think host all the time. Think host. So, so I find with guests, when guests arrive at church, guests normally arrive early. You know that annoying thing when you invite a guest round to your house and they turn up early? And you think, oh, they turned up early. So as hosts, we've got to be here early to, to welcome them. If you're a host, you look out for people out there who are new. Because if you've got a guest in your home, you don't want to feel like they're, they're feeling nervous or they might be feeling nervous. You know, I've, I've said this to you, I've said this to you before, but let me just tell you this. If you're a man under 30, you are more comfortable walking around the laundry department at M&S than you are walking through a church door. That is how frightening it is for people to walk through a church door. If you're a guest, you, you kind of talk to them. You kind of offer them a drink because if someone is a, is a guest in your house and you've invited them around for a meal and their glass is empty, you go and fill it up, don't you? Or you go and offer them something. We have to think far more as hosts rather than, than, than guests. And here's the third one. Let's just move on. The letter A. It stands for, I just used this one this time, Alpha, basically. Because let's pray and ask God over this summertime who he wants us to invite to our next Alpha course. Tuesday the 12th of September, 7 o'clock, that's when it's, when it's going to be. Some of you have been on that Alpha course, the last one that we ran. So if you want to know who they are, then they can come and tell you what it was like. You know, if you don't know what Alpha is yet, it's just a chance for over 11 weeks where people who don't know Jesus have that opportunity to learn a bit more about what it means to be a follower of, of Jesus Christ. Go and do that. Because another of the big myths that we believe about evangelism when it comes to us asking people if they want to come to something, we think it's all about us. And it's never about us. Because in the Bible, who is described as the evangelist? God. God is the evangelist. So all he says to us is just pray to me. Just pray to me who... I want you to invite 
Because God would want you to invite someone. He really would. Just pray to me. And then just have the courage to just offer that invitation. You know, if they accept it, if they reject it, that's not down to you. That's down to God. Do the work of the evangelist. You see, at the heart of trust, isn't it, is risk. We all know this, don't we? Think about the person you love the most. Or maybe if they've sadly died, the person who you did love the most. Or think about the girl or the boy that you really like at this moment. And you're wondering, do they like me? And at some stage, you have to take that risk. If you're married to them, maybe it worked out all right. But, you know, you had to take a risk at some stage. One of you had to take the risk and thought, I think she likes me, but I'm not sure. I think, think he does, but I'm, I'm not sure. You had to take the heart of trust. It's, it's risk. Let me tell you a story of something hap- that happened last Sunday morning. If you were here last Sunday morning, you will know about this. If you're not, because this goes round, could go all around the world basically, because it goes on the internet. I'm not going to mention any names. But let me tell you something that happened. If you were here last week, you will know about this. This is a, this is a true story if you weren't here. Just at the end of when I finished preaching last week, there was someone in this building who's never been in this building before, as far as we know, basically. And basically, they were saying something to God. They were crying out to God, in prayer because of a situation of a, fam- of a friend who'd been involved in an accident the day before and there was, there was little hope for this person and so this person cried out to God and said God if you are there hear my prayer and let me know that you have heard my prayer and you will know that then after I finished praying Someone came and spoke to me. You'll know who it was if you were here, and I won't embarrass them. And they then said, God's given me a message. And he wants, you, he wants someone to know here this morning that I have heard their prayer. Now to then go and say those words in public in a gathering a bit like this takes trust takes a risk not knowing what had happened and none of you or very few of you will think well oh what did happen you know that woman who was there just came and saw the person who spoke at the end of that service and said I want you to know that I was the person who was praying that prayer Stories like that are powerful. They involve risk. They build faith. And then we think afterwards, God, why did we ever doubt you? But there's always a a risk element in trust and in inviting. Here's the letter R. The letter R stands for reason. 1 Peter 3.15 says, Always give the reason. When asked for the hope that you profess in Jesus Christ. And when you do it, do it with gentleness and respect. So, 
It's really important that we know what we know and why we know about what we believe about the good news of Jesus Christ. Because if we, if we don't know, how can we tell anyone else? In my curacy, I spent four years, quite a bit of time with this retired priest. He was a retired priest called David. He'd spent 40 years in parish ministry, mainly in the northwest of England. And he, he said this to me. He said, Ian, the typical Christian will die before they lead anyone to Christ. And one of the biggest myths out there is that, well, I don't need to use words when it comes to evangelism. I can just let my actions be enough. And often what, what, what will then happen is people will then cite someone like St. Francis of Assisi who said, preach the gospel at all times and where necessary use words. And say, so, well, my, my actions are enough. Well, listen, most commentators think that St. That Francis of Assisi never ever said it. And actually if he did, he's wrong. And he's wrong because of this. It assumes that all Christians are kind. And it assumes all non-Christians are not kind. And both statements are not true. Because I know plenty of people in this island who do an awful lot of good things. And an awful lot of kind things. But they're not followers of, of Jesus Christ. We have to tell the difference as the, using words that Jesus has made to our lives. Otherwise we're no different then let's say side by side. Or oh, we're no different than the Rotary Club. We have to be prepared to know the reason why we believe what we believe. So let's, let's give you an example of that so that you can, you can think about that. So if we were wanting to say, if, if, if let's say, think about when Jesus met people who didn't know who he was. And who then became a follower of him. If you look and you read all the Gospels, he never had this systematic approach. It was always determined by the situation that he faced. Always. And so, sometimes when I'm asked to explain, well, what do you believe about this? Or why do you believe this? My response is always determined by the, by, by, by the question. So, if we just think about it, we should be able to explain in a couple of minutes. This, let's take this one. This is, this is what I call the narrative trapezium. I showed you this one a, a, a few months ago. So, but what you'll notice is this. You know, I always say, if you can find better practices, tell, them, tell me about them and we'll get a better version. And so, this is what's called the narrative trapezium. But I've turned it the other way around. Because somebody said, oh, it would be far better if you did it like this shape rather than that. Because if you think about every story, every story has four points to it. It has a setting, it has a crisis, it has an intervention, and it has a resolution. This is every story. So if I'm asked to explain, well, Ian, tell me a bit about the big picture, if you like, of, of Christianity. Tell me why you believe this, this makes sense. And I'd maybe talk about the, the big picture of, of Christianity. And I'd say, well, obviously, at the start of the world, God created the world. And he created this beautiful, perfect world. 
This world that was lovely. This world that was great. It was full of life. And at the crown of that creation, at the crown of life was humanity. And it was great. And it was wonderful. And then humanity decided, and this is where the crisis comes in. They decided that it was better if they lived life without God. And so what happens when you live life without God is a, is a word enters our world. It's a word called sin. And the Bible will then tell us that because sin entered our world, because humanity decided to live without God, death is the result. <clears throat> and then I'd then go on and maybe say, well, for, for centuries, this is how it was. You were born and there was life. But you soon worked out from a very, very young age. In fact, you never had to learn it because it was inside you right from the start. That you would sin and then you would die. And that was the process for many, many centuries. But the Bible talks about how God would at some stage send someone. Send someone who would break that cycle of life, sin, death. And that person was God himself who came in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, when he lived on this earth, he lived a life with God. He never sinned. And in the end, even when he was crucified, and they thought they'd killed him, because he never sinned, the power of death couldn't hold him and so God raised him from the dead and he gave an opportunity then for each of his followers to know life as it was always meant to be and we get a little foretaste of that now so much so that at the end of time when the story is resolved in the new heavens and the new earth there is no more sin. There is no more death. And there is life. You know, you could, you could use something like that and you could work on it and make it, make it better than what I've just explained it there. If I'm asked to explain, let's say, our universal need for God, then I might use this one. Now, you could think about this. This is the morality ladder. You know, just think about this one for a moment. As to where you go and you maybe start to talk about this and you maybe start to say to people okay then you see morality as some sort of escalating rung on a ladder where you try and work out how good am I how good am I and you maybe start asking the question and you sort of say okay then well where's God on the ladder and you might put God right at the top there and then you might say okay well if God's right at the top there who's right at the bottom and then you, because we grade sins, you'd, you'd maybe talk about, oh, well, the ones that go right at the bottom, well, they're the serial killers. They're the worst thing. And then you might say, okay, then, and you might then ask them, well, where would, where would you put yourself on the ladder? But just before you do that, let's just take Mother Teresa. Because most people think Mother Teresa was a saint. 
So where would Mother Teresa go on the ladder? Well, we might say, well, Mother Teresa was, would go there. And then you might say, well, before you answer the question about where you'd put yourself, where would you put the Pope? Where would you put Pope Francis? And you might say, oh, I don't know. And then you might say, well, actually, Pope Francis, would probably maybe, we might put him there. We might put him there because he knows he's a very sinful man. That's what he said when he became Pope. He said, I'm a very simple man who God has been kind to. So where would you put yourself on the ladder? And no matter where you start to think of where you put yourself on the ladder, there is a gap between you and God. And you ask people, what's, what's your plan for resolving the gap? Because Mother Teresa had a plan. Pope Francis has a plan for closing the gap. It was the cross of Jesus Christ. And you can start to explain a bit more from there. Know the reason why you believe. And here's the last one, E. Do the work of the evangelist. You know, we often believe as Christians another myth that, well, we can leave evangelism to the evangelists. It's up to them. Or those who've got the gift of evangelism. We can just leave it to them. But you know, God has given each of us a net to fish with. He gives a baby a big fishing net that you sometimes see them throw out of boats to the evangelists as they throw them out. But God has given each of us a net. And Paul said those words, do the work of an evangelist to Timothy. If you know anything about Timothy, you'll know he was a bit of a brittle character at times. He could be a bit fearful. And Paul said to him, Timothy, take up your net and do the work of the evangelist. And he says the same to us. Go and do the work of the evangelist. You know, many of us, if we're over the age of 30 here, have lived through the era of one of the greatest evangelists that the world ever, has ever seen namely Billy Graham. And when Billy Graham used to do his evangelistic crusades and he used to pack out stadiums across the UK and across the world, people in the UK used to say, wouldn't it be great if Billy Graham could come all the time? And you know, if you know anything about Billy Graham's evangelistic crusades, you'll know that they kept numbers of how many people became Christians through his work. And if... He came for 300 years, every year, everywhere in the UK would be a Christian. That would be how long it would take. Let me give you another statistic. And I'll make it specific to this island. If every Christian in this island just loved one, person who they loved very dearly who they knew wasn't a Christian and they just kept sharing their faith in whatever ways we've talked about this morning so much so that after five years maybe they might become a follower of Jesus and then if that person did the same with someone else and you then went and did that with someone else in less than 25 years the whole of this island would be a Christian island. That's why 
when we think about it. We're called to do the work of an evangelist and to take out our nets and just share the difference of the hope and the reason that we have in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. For Christ's love compels us. So Lord, help us now. Lord, with a person who you might share a name with now. It might be the person we love the most and they don't know Jesus. Help us to be you to them Lord for anyone here who's thinking you might want to take that step of faith then as Jesus is here reach out to him And say, Lord, come and meet me where I am. And so, Lord, build us up, strengthen us, encourage us to go out, to share the message of your love, because it is the best news ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.